Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have an amazing founder, you know, a founder that has done it before, that really understands what it takes to go into building, scaling, financing, and even taking companies public. So, uh, you know, we're going to be learning quite a bit. We're going to be very inspired with his journey. I can assure you that. Uh, and without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, David Flynn. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So originally from Florida, born in Florida, but obviously your formative years in Alabama. Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah. So uh, didn't live very long in Florida. My dad uh, went to Duke and got a PhD and then uh, taught for a while at the University of Kentucky and ended up in the um, uh, missile interceptor program back in the uh, early 80s, mid 80s the Star Wars program there in Huntsville, Alabama, big into rocket science. So that's where I got technology exposure, even though I was uh, growing up in the Southeast. How did you teach yourself computer programming? How do you, how do you land into, into the love yeah. of computers? Well, I started um, by riding my bike down to the local TRS store and made a deal that he would let me sit there and, and program on the TRS-80, so the Radio Shack store. Um, if, if, uh, if I would show it to folks when they came in. So, uh, so I started on the TRS 80 there at Radio Shack, but, uh, we finally got our own home computer with the Commodore 64. But the, this, the story is there. I had to confess to Steve Wozniak, who was my chief scientist at Fusion IO, uh, Apple founder, Steve Wozniak. I had to confess to him that uh, that we were too poor to own an Apple. They were too expensive. <laughs> so we had a Commodore 64. So I taught myself programming on that basic and then assembly language. And I built a uh, wireframe, real-time 3D rendering. You remember like the old battle zone, that, that wireframe stuff? I wrote uh, assembly language software to do that rendering on, on that computer. And it ended up getting me a job working for Computer Science Corporation, building a flight simulator for an Army missile system my junior and senior year in high school. So um, that, of course, was with better hardware than the Commodore 64, but it was the C64 that I learned on. That's amazing. So then in your case, you know, you ended up going and studying computer science. And right from there, I mean, you, you got your... You, you, you did cut your teeth, you know, when it came to, uh, let's say, tracking, you know, flight paths and things like that on an Oracle database. But one of the coolest things, you know, a pivotal moment in your career was working for Larry Ellison, you know, for That's one right. of the startups that he was developing. Well, so tell us about that. Interestingly enough, it was uh, Mark Benioff um, that I interviewed with, and it was his team at Oracle that I went to work for. Um, he, uh, Larry had asked him to go and build web browser. Uh, back in the early days of the internet. Um, but that quickly got shelved when it became clear nobody was ever going to make money with web browser technology. When Netscape and Microsoft Internet Explorer got into open warfare. So that whole team uh, that at Oracle 
where I was for less than six months, that whole team got spun out into Network Computer Inc. Larry Ellison was going to go poke Microsoft and Intel in the eye uh, by building a smart terminal that wasn't based on either the x86 processor or much less the Microsoft OS. So we took uh, NetBSD because this predated Linux being considered viable from a corporate perspective. So we took NetBSD and built a, um, a platform and basically wrapped up the market. Sun used it, IBM used it. Um, the, the interesting story there is this is around the same time that, that Java, Java became all the rage and Sun proposed Java OS and the Java station, which was a terrible idea. Java is not a language to write an operating system in. So we saved their bacon by building it from a real OS, basically the precursor to Linux at the time, BSD and made a smart terminal. But even that turned out to be a very small market. So the company changed focus and name, became Liberate Technologies, and was focused on interactive TV, because presumably the TV was going to become, you know, the smart terminal at home. Isn't it funny how it developed the other way around? Now our PC laptops are the are the replacement for the TV. <laughs> and, I, and I wonder, like, how was the experience of, um, you know, getting the opportunity to to have those exchanges with with people like Mark Benioff or Larry Ellison, I mean, uh, sorry, people that have changed, you know, uh, yeah. everything. Well, you know, uh, I started a satellite office in Salt Lake City uh, that grew to thirty people. First, starting at Oracle, then NCI uh, Liberate, and uh, we got to keep our heads down and build cool technology. So that's what I was focused on most. Um, but uh, yeah. It, you know, it's 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 a bigger deal looking back. Even now, like um, Dave Lim, who's running Blue Origin now, he was one of the principals there at Liberate. Uh, so you know, it's uh, well, if you're as old as I am and and been around, then then you'll run into people like that. But to have a chance to have worked with Dave Lim, who's now running Blue Origin, or or Mark Benioff, or or Larry Ellison, yeah, it's it's um, it's it's, it's been fun. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Now, in your case, you know, obviously, you know, after that, you did a, a couple of things, you know, after, you know, really experiencing to the bubble bursting. Uh, but, but but in the end, that led you to one thing to the next, led you to create your first company, Fusion IO. So how was the experience? What were the sequence of events that needed to happen for you to say, hey, I think I'm going to go at it on my own? So Liber Liberate Technologies had a very successful IPO, but it was like six months before the bubble burst. Um, but it was my first taste of being at a company through an IPO and gave me a little bit of financial independence. Um, but as soon as that blew up, uh, some of the engineers that I had brought into the team said, you know, you got to come work for this outfit that's building supercomputers um, where they had worked previously. And they went back to because it was... Um, uh, big in in government business, which was great when the when the bubble burst. So went into building supercomputers, and this was around the time InfiniBand was a new thing, a new type of networking. And so I became uh, an expert in using InfiniBand to build supercomputers, and we built some of the world's largest supercomputers and the first ones to use InfiniBand for the U.S. Department of Energy, and then later, you know, several um, other departments and private uh, private companies like Boeing and the like. Um, but I came across an entrepreneur who had built a networking company 
named Phobos, sold to Sonic Wall back in the day. And I think that's now part of Dell. Uh, it had been a relatively successful exit. And he convinced me to jump ship. Here I am, an engineer, um, and doing the funnest thing an engineer could ever imagine doing, building supercomputers. Uh, and he's like, you got to come with me. I'm, I'm doing this project that was a security device. So I went from doing uh, smart terminals and, and uh, interactive TV, which uses very low-powered devices, to building supercomputers back to a security device that was using embedded Linux and NAND Flash. And he, he convinced me to go to this startup um, that, um, you know, unfortunately was a bit ahead of its time. And when that wrapped up, uh, we got to throwing out ideas. And I said, you know, this, this flash device that we're using, it's become a commodity in the consumer electronics world. In the world of cell phones and iPods, flash had gotten to very high density. And I said, but people aren't using this in high-end computing. This should be everywhere in the supercomputing world, in, in, the, in the big web monsters. And yet, if you looked at solid-state disks of that era, they were pathetic. They were slower than regular hard drives. So I said, somebody's doing this wrong. Let's design it right. And, and we built Fusion IO and made you know, the first truly high-performance solid-state storage devices and the first truly enterprise-grade reliable. And we went from first revenue to nearly a quarter billion a year in less than three years. Wow. Uh, Facebook, if you talk to the early principals at Facebook, they will tell you that it was Fusion IO hardware that allowed them to scale their service to support a billion users overnight. And um, they purchased, in the end, over a billion dollars of product from Fusion IO. Um, Apple ran iCloud on it, uh, Microsoft with Bing. Um, and now this type of flash, it's become standardized, NVMe, and it's going to be, it's already a quarter trillion a year industry. It's soon going to be a half a trillion a year industry. And I was just, I was just going to ask you there too, for the people that are listening to, to get it, what was the business model there of Fusion IO? I mean, how are you guys making money? So um, this was a hardware company, even though I'm a software guy. It was an opportunity I couldn't pass up in, in doing it. Um, and uh, we were unique in that we built what otherwise looked like a component, but we didn't sell it through other uh, systems vendors. Uh, we didn't uh, put it into storage systems or what. We sold it directly to end users. But a new class of end users, the web monsters, the big hyperscale companies, who they don't want to pay the markup of a systems vendor. They want to use very um, uh, uh, capable components and build their own systems. And so we had a very unique go-to-market model in that we went direct to the end user, the end user in this case being the web monsters, and bypassed the systems vendors, the storage systems vendors, and to some extent even the, the, the computer server systems vendors. Uh, but we had a good relationship with the server vendors, um, like Dell, they OEM'd the product, HP, IBM, uh, all of the major server vendors uh, OEM'd our product. But mind you, because they had to, 
because we sold to the end users and they pulled it through. So they never would have pushed the product. It was too much of a premium. I mean, one of these devices cost like five times as much as the whole server. <laughs> so, so, and then people would put dozens of them in a server. Um, but this was, it was kind of a bit poetic. We, um, using Fusion IO in a couple of servers, you could get 10 times the performance of an entire Oracle Exadata, um, you know, multi-rack uh, database system um, just by putting these devices into regular servers. So we kind of busted open the systems, the fallacy of the systems world by building devices that at least the bleeding edge guys like the web monsters could integrate at scale much more cost effectively and get much higher performance from. Now, in this case, you uh, were the CEO, but you're also a technical guy. So what have you learned there about not stepping out of the engineering or technical side of things completely and just serving the business side? So, yeah, I, I started at Fusion IO as the CTO, and it wasn't until two years in and we had already gone through two different CEOs that um, Mark Andreessen of Netscape fame, he convinced me that I should step up as CEO. Uh, I, um, you know, here I am, you know, technologist, uh, uber technologist, but, uh, but he has a really strong belief in technical founders as the CEO, especially of tech companies. And he said, um, if you step up as CEO, then we will invest uh, in Dreesen Horowitz. And they did come in in the third round um, of investment, along with, uh, you know, Excel Ventures, who had funded Facebook, for example. And, um, and I ran the company then for two, two more years as a private company. Uh, we did our IPO on the New York Stock Exchange, and I ran it for two years. Uh, well, just under two years, seven quarters. Never missed a quarter. We always met our forecast. Um, I only had to guide down once, and that's because when Facebook went public, they became much more conservative and found that thanks to the capability of our product, they didn't need to put in a third data center to serve the U.S. They could serve the U.S. from just two, and they didn't need the third. So all of a sudden, we had a a $200 million hole in our revenue pipeline for the year because uh, we were so disruptive, they didn't even need to put in a third data center. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, 
or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And at the um, at the peak of the valuation, it was $3.2 billion, you know, which is remarkable to build a company of that size. And, and eventually the company got acquired by SanDisk, which Great. allowed you to explore greener pastures. So, uh, so what happened? What happened next? So, well, I said, you know, what's the biggest challenge um, in the world of IT? And frankly, it's it's data and how it relates to storage. Um, you know, data is a higher level abstraction, and yet it is a prisoner to the storage systems that house it. And um, and that's upside down. It means infrastructure is the boss and platform is, you know, subordinate. So we set out to build a way for data to be independent of the very storage that stores it. Um, this is not dissimilar from how compute is now independent of the computers running it by using virtualization and now containers and, and containerized microservices. So you could say Hammerspace is doing for data, what VMware did for the compute, decoupling it from the actual hardware underneath and allowing you to use it in a way that's independent. And we talk about this as data orchestration. So I set out with this vision to decouple data from storage uh, by making it something that's presumed to always be in motion and its existence is not coupled to any specific storage. And it can flow freely between data centers where you can consume it at the highest levels of performance. Um, but without it being dependent upon any specific piece of storage infrastructure. And how do you guys make money here? So this is a pure software play sold as a subscription, one year, three year, five year subscription. Uh, so it's not even a SaaS company. I don't have any, any infrastructure costs because it's pure software. Our customers run our software in their own environment on their own infrastructure, and it creates a data service for them that allows them to consume and manage data across uh, across the universe of different infrastructure, across different facilities, across different types of storage. Uh, so it is a, um, it's a uh, software subscription model. Now, in this case, you know, like the way that, uh, that you've gone about capitalizing the business has been a little bit unique. You know, in this case, you have invested quite a bit of money yourself. So talking about, you know, putting skin in the game. So I guess, how much have you invested into this business? And then also, why did you decide to go this, this way around? So um, at this point, I've put nearly 20 million in myself. Most of that was in the earlier end, uh, have had uh, support later. Um, and uh, some of the early investors at Fusion.io who made a uh, very good return. We returned to our angel investors at Fusion.io, we returned 500 times their money in less than four yeah. years. 500 times. So 50,000% return. <laughs> well, hopefully they invited you to dinners eh, after that. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, um, you know, 
they they were quite supportive uh, of the next venture. They were playing with house money at that point. Um, but uh, so th- the success of Fusion IO allowed me, you know, the the financial wherewithal to see this one through. Um, and uh, and you know, it is the 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 technology that we've built. It it is at its heart a new type of file system, a file system that can that doesn't live inside a computer or even an an appliance on the network. It's not like a filer. It's a file system that lives as a disembodied software service across everything and can move and manage data everywhere. So it is kind of the ultimate progression of file systems from the early day of computing to where now it's a file system that can span the cloud. Um, And that was always going to be a very major investment in engineering. And I I went and recruited that I can truthfully say the top talent in the world because there's only one Linux OS and our CTO is the guy who owns that part of the Linux kernel appointed by Linus Torvalds himself. So Tron Mikkelbust, our CTO is very distinguished and we built an awesome team. And it's, it's been the fact that Linux is so dominant that ha- in the, in the data center that has allowed us to build this very sophisticated technology because it's sort of standing on the shoulders of giants, right? So, uh, yeah, not your typical kind of funding, not your typical kind of team. And frankly, it was a much more ambition, ambitious effort than VCs would generally take. Their investment window is maybe four or five years, which is a whole hell of a lot better than quarter to quarter like Wall Street. Uh, but it's still not enough to do something that requires, you know, very deep foundational engineering. Now, recently, you opened it up to to other folks to come in and invest. I, I think that recently you uh, raised fifty five million. So, what mm-hmm. trigger you know you to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to open it up for for other folks to come in? Well, we got to the stage where we needed the extra leverage from financial partners, and we also got to the point where the valuation was meaningful for that, right? Where it wasn't too dilutive for the company. So, you know, this is. This, while it was our first round of of outside capital, it was really equivalent to a third round, a C round of investing, an expansion round. Uh, so the early and mid stage VC role is what I did along with some of these, let's call them super angels. Um, and only in this third round did we bring in uh, institutional investors uh, along with. And even then, it's a different class of investors. The the folks that we've brought in here are actually folks that play in the public markets. And uh, they're investing in Hammerspace, um, many of them because they have built vehicles for investing in the private markets in advance. So we've been thinking of this more as, let's get the shareholders that we want to have when we're public. Let's just get them now. That way we don't have to worry about shareholder turnover when we go public. And so that's been the case with like Kathy Wood and ARK Investments. Of course, they're mainly playing in the public markets, um, but they now have an interval fund that allows them to invest in private companies. The same with Peer 88, which is a similar focused uh, group. And our lead investor, Prosperity 7, that's actually Saudi Aramco. And they're obviously a long-term shareholder because they're trying to find good places to put capital, right? Now, obviously, with investors, it's all about vision. So... Imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, David, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Hammerspace is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, um, 
we kind of already live there from a consumer point of view. When you, when you replace your phone, you don't even think about your data. It's on the next phone. You don't think about it, right? When you go between your phone and your laptop or to a tablet, your data is just there. Consumer data has already made this leap of being orchestrated for you in a way where it's independent of the devices. Is it in the cloud? Is it on the device? It's kind of a mix of both. You don't care, right? Well, what we're doing is that same thing, but for the foundation data of data-intensive businesses, drug research, uh, uh, space research. I mean, Jeff Bezos, Blue Origin is is a client using this. Um, the you know folks designing microchips, making movies. You know, anything where data is the heart of the business, well, we want to make it so that data um, is independent even of these big enterprise storage systems and cloud services so that you can use it anywhere. So they can go from this data center in this cloud, they can go to this other cloud vendor, they can go to on-prem. So things like hybrid cloud, multi-cloud, multi-region across the cloud, you ought to have that same experience of just having the data be there even though it's this massive amounts of, of, you know, petabyte scale data, you know, instead of the gigabytes that you have, uh, you know, personal data. So to, to an extent, we already live there from a consumer electronics. And this, this I have found to be a very successful recipe. Look at what, what is changing in the consumer electronics world and what opportunity does that present to disrupt more stodgy more protected markets like enterprise IT. Um, and that was the case with Fusion IO and the solid state storage devices, flash chips that are used in, you know, your back then iPods and the initial smartphones and be able to use that in the enterprise IT. And now we're saying this concept of data orchestration that we're used to from a consumer world, how do we introduce that same concept of decoupling of data you know, so it's not localized in any specific piece of hardware. How do we do that uh, with in the in the corporate IT world? Now we're talking about the future here, but I want to talk about the past, and doing so with a lens of reflection. So imagine I was to put you into a time machine, David, and I bring you back to that moment in time where you were thinking about doing something of your own, right? Branching out right before you started Fusion IO and. Let's say you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger David and being able to give that younger David one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, going back to something you, you, you mentioned in passing, um, uh, stay confident in your strengths and, um, you know, nobody's going to care as much as you are as an entrepreneur. So stick to your guns and your vision and know where your strengths are and um, go with it. Yes, you have to delegate and uh, working to delegate to very competent people. Uh, but I like to say, I like to hire very competent people and give them the kind of stuff that I don't like to do so that I can spend my stuff on the things that I do like to do. So, um, you know, I, I think I, throughout my career, uh, wasted time and effort and set the business back by not staying as hands-on in the areas where, where I am, uh, you know, where I have a passion, obviously on the very technical side, in the engineering side, in my case. 
Um, so I think I could have saved myself a lot of effort if I'd known that from the beginning that, you know, um, it, it, just because you make people uncomfortable, uh, by being still, uh, highly involved in it. Um, you know, and, and, and I have, um, you know, it's, that's always been a challenge in my career for, because I, 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 um, I have been from the beginning, um, you know, very deep into engineering and engineers like to butt shoulders and so forth. But I've, I've learned to, um, not be afraid to, um, stay highly involved in that. Uh, and yes, you have to surround yourself with very competent people who can, who can withstand that when you're, you know, when you're the CEO of the company. Um, but there's just no way around it. You can't tippy toe around it. You got to hire really competent people that can stand on their own right so that you can stay just as involved because if you back off because the people are too fragile to have you involved, then it's kind of a double loss. Now for the people that are listening, David, that would like to reach out and say, hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, welcome to reach out to me, uh, uh, at hammerspace, hammerspace.com, our website, uh, my email's up there, but david.flynn at hammerspace.com. Uh, welcome to reach out. Amazing. Well, hey, David, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. My honor. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.